And so this book we're looking at this morning, the book of Habakkuk, I think is a very timely book. It has a very timely message, certainly a message for the times in which you and I live. We are going to be reading chapter 3, but what I'll be doing this morning is not so much doing an exposition of chapter 3 as taking a broad sweep of the book and then zeroing in on verses 16 to the end of chapter 3. So let's read Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth, O Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses. The surging of mighty waters I hear, my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instrument. Who was this man, Habakkuk? He was the last of the minor prophets to the southern kingdom of Judah before the Babylonian captivity of 606 BC. And what this means is that he prophesied around the time of Nahum, Jeremiah, and possibly Zephaniah. His ministry lasted for 20 years. And while Habakkuk tells us nothing about himself other than that, that he was a prophet, 
Chapter 3 and the very last part of verse 19 suggests that he was a musician and a songwriter, possibly a Levitical singer in the temple choir. Habakkuk was a prophet. He was musically inclined, but most important, he was a man of faith in God. Interestingly, his name means embrace or one who strongly enfolds. And based on what we're going to learn of this man, Habakkuk, we could say that the character of his faith was truly reflective of his very name. For his was a tenacious kind of faith, a faith that took hold of God in prayer. Amidst the seeming contradictions of God's acts in history, when his world just didn't make sense, he nonetheless took hold of God cleaving to God with firm, courageous faith and trust. And it's not without significance then that the book of Habakkuk is eminently known for one of the most classic statements on the subject of faith in God. Consider the key verse of the book. Chapter 2, verse 4 teaches that the righteous will live by faith. Quoted some three times in the New Testament, this verse not only provides the basis of the New Testament doctrine of justification by faith, but defines the nature of Christian living. It's quoted in chapter 1 and verse 17 of Romans, Galatians chapter 3 verse 11, to teach the doctrine of justification by faith. And in chapter 10 verse 38 of the epistle to the Hebrews, it is used to teach the nature of Christian faith, namely that Christian faith is a persevering faith. We come to chapter 1, and if you would flip over to chapter 1, we see, first of all, the worried prophet. The worried prophet. In a worried, perplexed frame of mind, Habakkuk begins with a prayer of lament. We see it in verses 2 and 3, and he prays as follows, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. A few things we note here is that, first of all, as a man of faith, Habakkuk was a man of prayer. He was a man who was given to prayer. He knew the importance of pouring out his heart before the Lord. And because he was a man of prayer, it is not surprising that secondly, he shared the heart of God as regards the moral and spiritual conditions of his time. Among his own people, he saw nothing but moral and spiritual declension, mayhem, and violence were the order of the day. Verses 2 and 3, he had witnessed the errant neglect of the word of God and the consequent downward slide of truth and justice in society. As he put it in verse 4, the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Sounds very much like our time, doesn't it? And so, distressed by the prevailing iniquities of his time, Habakkuk had a burden, a passion for the revelation of God's justice. Like Job, like the psalmist, Asaph, 
Habakkuk was confused, he was perplexed as he witnessed the seeming success of the wicked in their evil pursuits. And this posed a real challenge to his faith. Habakkuk, like you and I today, he looked at his society, a society that was running down the tube, so to speak, a society in which there was hardly any reference to God, a society in which injustice and all kinds of evil and wickedness prevailed. Because of the rampant reign of lawlessness and wickedness in the land and the seeming indifference of God, verses 3 and 4, he was impelled to ask the question, why? Habakkuk began to question the justice of God, the righteousness of God. Actually, there are two times that Habakkuk posed to the Lord the question. Question number one, how long, O Lord, verse 2, and question number three, why? Two critical questions which continue to puzzle and baffle the godly throughout the ages. Have you ever been there? Have you ever looked at conditions around you and you ask, how long can this continue? Where is God in all this? In a society in which evil seems to be the order of the day, in a society where there's no respect for God, no regard for the things of God, in a society in which the family is falling apart to an ungodly society, where is God in all of this? Have you ever cried out to God, how long, Lord, why, Lord, why, why? Why? That was the prophet Habakkuk. And the value of this book of Habakkuk is that it addresses the problem of a weak and staggering faith, of doubting, of questioning God in the face of evil, something that you and I are most prone to do. Now, from the two questions he raised, how long and why, we come to see that while Habakkuk was a man of prayer, he was also a man who knew the reality of a silent heaven. He knew what it was to cry out to God. He knew what it was to agonize before God, to question God, to plead with God. And his prayers, it seemed, just bounced off the ceiling. At times in our prayers, God seems distant and indifferent. We cry out to him in our moments of distress, in our moments of discouragement, and it seems that the heavens are as brass, to use the words of the prophet Isaiah. Our prayers seem to be getting nowhere, but the thing we need to understand, the thing we must always bear in mind, and no doubt Habakkuk came to that realization, is that God wants for us to persevere, to linger at the throne of grace, to continue to cry out to him. In fact, the word of God commands us, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, pray without ceasing. Our Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 18, verse 1, told a parable to the effect that men ought always to pray and not to faint. And later down in that parable, he says, and will not God give justice to his elect even though they cry out to him day and night? Verily, I say to you, he will give them justice. So if there's one thing that Habakkuk teaches, it's the value of relentless, persevering prayer. Habakkuk was a man of faith. He was a man of prayer, persevering prayer. 
We look at verses 5 through 11, chapter 1, and in answer to Habakkuk, the Lord reveals that he's going to chastise his people for their sins. Well, that's coming home to Habakkuk. That makes sense. Injustice must be punished. God, is, after all, is not dead. God is not silent. And God lets Habakkuk know how he's going to do what he's going to do, how he's going to bring about the chastisement of his people He's going to do so by means of the cruel, devastating invasion of the Chaldeans, a notoriously wicked people. And so God makes it clear to Habakkuk that he's not sleeping, he's not idle, he's not indifferent to evil and wickedness around him, that is Habakkuk. Now far from resolving Habakkuk's, Perplexity. This response from God only aggravated his perplexity. And this was a problem for Habakkuk. You see, while he was fully aware that God would chastise his people for their sins, he was greatly disturbed that the Lord would use a nation far more wicked than they were to punish them. In fact, for us to understand how viciously cruel, how viciously evil the Chaldeans were, note verse 6. We notice in verse 6 that they were a fiercely intimidating people, a law to themselves as it were. These people plundered and preyed upon other nations. We read in verse 7, they are dreaded and fearsome, their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. They were a law to themselves. They had brutal military forces that were unmatched by any of their day that is suggested in verse 8. They were an inhumane people. They cared very little about human rights or of human life. Look at verse 9. They took the light, the word of God tells us, in gathering people like sand so as to make captives of them. They were brutal. They were big. They were bad. I'd venture to say they were worst in terms of badness, if my grammar will allow that, than Corn Pop, who was a bad dude. As our president would say, evidently he was a very courageous man in his time, and he tells about Corn Pop. Well, let me tell you, Corn Pop would have been no match for the Chaldeans. There were people who were fearless in their cruelty. We see that in verse 10, according to verse 11. Notice, you can't get worse than this. Their strength, the word of God says, is their God. So they majored in their strength. They majored in their military capabilities. They were a law to themselves. They saw themselves and their military prowess. They saw themselves as divine, as it were. These were the kinds of people that God was going to use to whip, to chastise his own people. And that really troubled Habakkuk. And so seeing nothing but the destruction of his people, because listen, if the Chaldeans were to come up against God's people, given their history of devastation of other nations, then what would become of Israel? And seeing nothing but the destruction of his people... Habakkuk, notice in verses 12 through 17, he again goes before God in prayer. Here's what he says. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. You have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. 
You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why, here's a question again, why, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You see, what he's doing here, in his state of perplexity, Habakkuk has a lowered vision and understanding of God. He sees God here as being idle. He sees God here as being indifferent. He's focusing on the military prowess of the Chaldeans, their utter cruelty, their history of devastation. And he says, we are going to die. Lord, aren't you from everlasting? In other words, what he's saying, aren't you the covenant-keeping God who has made promise to Israel that Israel would continue as a nation? He says there, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and he's glad. He's talking about the cruelty of the Chaldeans. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? God, are you going to allow that to happen? Is what the prophet is saying as he understands that God is going to use these people to afflict his own nation. Let me say this. God, the sovereign Lord of history, has a way, you see, of using one nation to whip another nation. And we need to understand, my friends, that God being the God of history is still the God of today. And the message to us as a nation is this, that we had better understand, we had better come to the understanding that God reigns, he's the God of history, he's the God who rules and reigns in the affairs of men, and he will execute his wrath, even if it means doing so in devastating ways. Yes, Habakkuk was a man of faith, but as we see here, his faith was not without its moment of struggle. He was struggling at this point in his faith, because his faith at this point seemed to have been, have waned somewhat. Some have characterized him as the doubting Thomas of the Old Testament. Others have referred to him as the questing prophet or the perplexed prophet. And here, beloved, we see something of the realism of the word of God. The fact that the Bible presents a real, true-to-life picture of the biblical characters. What a contrast to what we often hear of people today who are reputed for great faith in God. People today, when we hear of their testimony, when we hear them speak about their experience of, of faith in God, their life with God, we get the impression that they are ever riding on cloud nine, never a moment of doubt, never down in the dumps, never in a moment of discouragement. That's never the picture we have of the biblical saints. You look at Abraham, the father of faith. Look at Elijah. Look at the psalmist Asaph in Psalm 73, who was troubled by the prominence and prosperity of the wicked. And you come to understand that, yes, God's people have their seasons of doubt. They have their seasons of discouragement. And here's the point. Regardless of where we might be in our spiritual life, in our spiritual pilgrimage, We are not beyond the point of being where Habakkuk 
was. Habakkuk asked the question why he was even led to consider God as being idle because God seemed indifferent in the face of prevailing iniquity and gross lawlessness. And so we learn from Habakkuk that it matters not how spiritually mature one might be at some point or another. The best of God's people are prone to a struggling, sagging faith. Now, in chapter 2, we see a shift in the attitude of the prophet. There's a shift in the attitude of the prophet. Prayer does a great deal. Prayer makes a big difference. And if in chapter 1, we see the worried prophet, here in chapter 2, we see the waiting prophet, the waiting prophet. Having presented his case before the Lord, Habakkuk states there, in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says this, Okay, then, I will, those words are not in the original, okay, then. <laughs> but he says this, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk is saying here, look, I'm going to just stand back and watch what in the world God is going to do with my complaint, with my concern. And his posture here, we could say, is one of patience and silence before the Lord. But it's also one of attentiveness to God. It's also one of expectation from God. You see, there's a way in which we can passively wait and be in silence, which there's no necessary virtue in that, because it might be a sign of a lack of faith, a weakness, a resignation, of hopelessness. But here it was, not only was Habakkuk in an attitude of patient, waiting before God, but he presents his case before God, then he stands back watching and waiting with anticipation for what God has to say to him. So it was an active waiting upon God. Oh, you and I need today the virtue of patience and silence before God. It's one thing to pray. It's one thing to cry to God. It's one thing to persevere in prayer before God. It's quite another thing to be silent and to wait for God to act. Waiting on God can be one of the hardest things to do. Why? Because it's not within our human nature. It's not our default position, especially in this technological age of instant this and instant that. We're living in a digital age. We can now send a message to just in an instant by way of X, formerly Twitter, email, Instagram, even the very word Instagram suggests what? Inst instant messaging. All of these names that are given to these platforms suggest what? A culture that is not oriented to waiting, to waiting. Now, as he waited on God from his watchtower, God gave Habakkuk a vision. And things are beginning to move here. A vision so marvelous that the one who reads it, God tells him, would be impelled to run. And the suggestion here is run with excitement. Here's what God said to him, verses 2 and 3. The Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain and on tablets, so he who may run, who reads it, for still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. I think that must have bolstered his faith a little because here is God, the God of integrity, the God who cannot lie, saying, listen, 
Even if it seems that it's delaying, it's not really the case. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Well, what were some of the things that were shown to Habakkuk in this vision? God revealed to him that although the Chaldeans were to be used by God for the chastisement of his people, yet he would eventually deal with them for their iniquity, verses 16 and 17. You see, God used, for example, the Assyrians. He calls Assyria the rod of my anger. And he says of Assyria, even though he doesn't intend to do so and so, yet he does it. Why? Because I command him. And after Assyria goes through with God's program of chastising Israel, his own people for their sins, guess what God does in turn? Afterwards, he whips Assyria for treating his people the way they did. Indeed, this vision gave the prophet the conviction that God will judge all evil. There is, listen, there's no atrocity that's committed in this world that God will not fix, that God will not rectify. All the injustices, all the brutalities, all the humanity of man toward man, God will someday address and he will fix it. If it's not in history, it is going to be at the judgment bar of God. We can be sure of that. God showed Habakkuk, though nations may wreak havoc on earth, the Lord, verse 20, is in his holy temple in heaven, which suggests this, that God is taking note. He's in his holy temple. Suggests that he's not sleeping, hence his judgment will ultimately silence all their wickedness, verse 20. It reminds us of what Psalm 46 says, as the nations are in uproar, God comes along and he says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And what does he do in the process? He breaks the bow and he burns the chariot in fire and into war. Why? Because our God is the arbiter in human history. Habakkuk envisions an unprecedented era. This is what God is showing Habakkuk amidst his perplexity, God shows him, he envisions an unprecedented era to come. When, verse 14, look at verse 14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Can I say this by way of comfort? It's not the global elites. It is God Almighty, the sovereign of the earth, who is going to cause his glory to fill the earth. Listen, he is the true global elite there is, not the WEF. In between the wickedness of the present age and the revelation of God's glory in the age to come, Habakkuk hears the Lord encouraging the godly, the godly to do what? To remain faithful. Look at verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. He's talking about the Chaldeans. It is not upright in him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Oh yes, the world looks at faith today and they say, that's weak, that's pie in the sky. And what is glorified is might and violence and self-assertion. But here's what God says, in the end, it is faith that is going to conquer. It is faith that is going to prevail. Why? Because that is the way we please God. And without faith, it is impossible 
to please him, for the one who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So what have we got so far? We have, number one, the worried prophet. That's chapter one. And things have improved, haven't they? Because in chapter 2, we see the waiting prophet. And having waited on God, he hears some wonderful things from God concerning the age to come. God is going to remedy. God is going to rectify all wrong. He's going to execute justice in all the earth. The earth will be filled with his glory as the waters cover the sea. Well, here's what we have in chapter 3. We have the worshiping prophet. The worshipping prophet. Whereas in chapter 2, we saw a positive change in the attitude of the prophet. Here in chapter 3, we see an even more dramatic change in the disposition and perspective of the prophet. A change in both his mood and his mindset. We see in Habakkuk a change from pessimism and gloom to triumphant optimism. That's the tone of chapter 3. And you ask, what was it that accounted for such transformation, such wonderful transformation in the heart and mind of Habakkuk? And what was it, what is it that will cause you and me today to rise above despair and discouragement to the place of praise and worship of God? It is this, it is this, here it is in chapter 3, and I submit it to you, here it comes, a revived understanding of who God is a revived understanding of God and of who God is. Beloved, what will enable you and me to weather the anxieties, the frustrations, the perplexities of these times in which we are living? It is this. It is not the sociological reports and the statistical data that will more drive us to discouragement than anything else. It is not what the psychologists are saying. It is not what the politicians are saying. There is no politician on the face of the earth that can bring to us the kind of hope, the hope for which a human heart longs. It is only God and an understanding of the power and glory of God that will sustain us in these days in which we live. It was this revived understanding of who God is that sustained Habakkuk, that drove Habakkuk to worship and praise of God. Habakkuk, notice, was tremendously transformed in his outlook because he caught a glimpse of the glory and majesty of God, the details of which he pens in a hymn of worship and praise, verses 3 to 19. So let's look very quickly at this hymn that he sings to God, this hymn of praise to God. He speaks, first of all, of the splendor and glory of God. To the extent that we are going to overcome, to the extent that our faith is going to be buoyant, to the extent that we are going to have a vibrant faith, we must see and understand something of the magnificent splendor and glory of God. Verses 3 and 4, he says this, God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. And he has the word there, Selah, means, some people believe it means stop and think. It's a musical term, stop and think. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. What is Habakkuk doing here? He's giving a flashback to Sinai. When God descended in majesty and might, so much so that the children of Israel were terrified at his glorious presence. 
It's as though Habakkuk is saying, Lord, yes, I go back and I understand. You are the God of glory, the God who descended on Mount Sinai. You, God, are a God who are most high, a God who is most glorious. In verse 5, he calls attention to past judgments of God in history, by which is implied that he, God, is the living God who is not indifferent to the sins and evils of men. In verses 6 through 12, he cites the sovereignty of God in nature and over nations. He speaks in verses 13 through 15 of the saving power of God on behalf of his people. Here in chapter 3, the prophet's courage is renewed as he is reminded of this, namely that God is the victorious Lord in control of all things and all people. And since God is the great and awesome God over all, Habakkuk then expresses in his song of praise the assurance, the confidence that he is the unfailing strength and hope of those who believe in him. And so at verses 17 through 19, as we come to a close, we find one of the most moving expressions of trust and confidence in God. Here the testimony of Habakkuk, he says this, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God is the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like deers. He makes me tread on my high places. And then it's as though he's saying, listen, take that to the choir master. Take it to the chief musician. Let them deal with it in the temple and celebrate that in a song. What is Habakkuk saying here in these verses? He's saying this. Even, may I put it in contemporary terms? He's saying this. Even though the economy fails, even though there is inflation, and even though people are losing this and that. Yes, he says, even though I might even lose my flock, there will be no herd in the stores. The trees are not blossoming and bringing fruit, yet I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. You know what caused that? Because he had a vision of who God is. And when we come to understand who God is, as the songwriter says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. That's the antidote to discouragement. That's the antidote to weariness. How big is our God? How great is our God, you see? Based on this triumphant note that's been rightly noted that the book of Habakkuk opens in darkness and closes in light. That it opens with a question mark and closes with an exclamation point. It opens with a sob and closes with a song. What are the takeaways this morning from this portion? Let me suggest very quickly. Number one, lessons we learn. Number one, it is perfectly legitimate to air our pains and perplexities to God. It is perfectly legitimate to ask why it is perfectly legitimate to air our anxieties or perplexities or frustrations. Notice when he needed answers, what did Habakkuk do? He did just that. He went before God. He cried out to God in his pain and perplexity. He went to the Lord with questions. Praise God, he had those questions answered. Second, prayer. And this is very simple, isn't it? Prayer is the best recourse we have when puzzled and confused. 
You know, it has often been said that prayer changes things. You have heard that saying, but look, read the book of Habakkuk and you notice something. Prayer does not necessarily change things. Prayer changes us. Prayer changes people. Habakkuk's perspective was changed. In a real way, prayer changes not just situation, but prayer changes people. As we see in the case of Habakkuk, prayer clarifies perspective. It clarifies our vision. It removes the cloud from our eyes and it enables us to see a God who is larger than any crisis that could ever confront us. And then fourthly, we learn that even when we cannot see our way or understand the ways of God, we should nevertheless trust and rejoice in him. That's what Habakkuk did. The point is this, for every crisis he has a solution which means we ought to trust him. That's why Job could confidently express in Job chapter 13 and verse 15, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. The point is, while we may not understand what God is doing, it's not important that we know. What's important is that we know God. We can rejoice in him because of who he is and what he has done in the past and what he has promised to do in the future. Fifthly, although answers to prayers may be delayed, we should confidently and patiently wait on God. Sixthly, God has a perfect plan of retribution in which evil will be punished in his own time. We can bank on that. And then finally, seventhly, we should base our hope and our security not in things and on circumstances, but in the living God. Habakkuk came to the point where he was no longer trusting in the land of Israel. He was no longer trusting in material things. He was no longer trusting in economics. He says, even though these things fail, yet I will rejoice in the Lord my God. And you notice what's happening there? He says, the Lord will make my feet like hinds feet. You know what he's saying? He'll cause it to skip and jump and dance with rejoicing. What tremendous hope we have then from this prophet, from this book. May God richly bless these words to our hearts. And as we look at conditions in our world today, let us take heart. And as our Lord Jesus says, when you see these things begin to happen, look up for your redemption draws nigh.